the college football season is over. An entire offseason of buildup, followed by a four-month gauntlet, has come and gone. For the 17th consecutive year, the Oklahoma Sooners ended the season not exactly in the position they wanted to be. For the 17th consecutive season, the Oklahoma Sooners failed to reach the pinnacle of the college football world. Gone is Baker Mayfield, in steps Kyler Murray. Gone is Orlando Brown, in steps Bobby Evans. Gone is Mark Andrews, in steps Grant Calcaterra. And so on, and so on. It's the bittersweet feeling that consumes us at the end of every season. One group of torchbearers moves on to the next step, and a new generation of Sooners take their place. The first Saturday of the 2018 college football season kicks off in 234 days. Start getting prepared. I have a feeling it's going to be an interesting one. And we're dedicated to being with you once again every step of the way. I'm Grant Benson. This is West of Everest. Nixon motions out. Mayfield looks his way. Over the middle. There he is. It's Andrews for the Oklahoma touchdown from 17. Mark Andrews welcomes us into the latest edition of West of Everest. That was Andrews' first Big 12 touchdown catch. It happened against West Virginia back in 2015. Andrews' final OU touchdown we now know came in the Big 12 title game against TCU. Andrews has declared for the NFL draft. We all wish him well, of course. Again, welcome into West of Everest. I'm Lee Benson. You heard Grant at the top of the show with the opening take. We'll bring him back in a moment, but first I want to remind you that the show West of Everest is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Thank you all who have been listening since we launched the show back in late August. And thanks to everyone who has left us a rating and or a review on iTunes. We've got a bunch of great feedback, and we really appreciate the support. If you've got a question or comment for us, you can email the show westofeverest at gmail.com. And you can find Grant and I on Twitter. I'm at Lee Benson News 9. Grant is at Grant Benson 25. And speaking of Grant, let's bring him back in. What's going on today, Grant? Oh, you know, Lee, I'm just hanging out. I want to do. Say, I want to say this one thing to uh, to the listeners before we start. As soon as I got back from LA last week, instantly got hit by one of the worst colds I've ever had in my entire life. It's it's that freezing cold, awful LA weather. Of course, that gave me this this awful cold. So if I sound a bit more nasally today than usual, that's why. Or if you hear me coughing or sneezing, and we miss it in, in post production, that's why. So I, I just I, I wanted to uh, to say that right at the beginning. But otherwise, I, I'm doing well. Lee, how are you doing? I'm fine. So you're playing hurt. That's awesome. Uh, wish you the best. Don't uh, don't uh, leave because I don't have anybody to sub in for you. And I guess I I don't really feel like uh, doing this whole show one on one, especially or not one on one, but just by myself, especially with this show, because we're going to talk about some of our preseason predictions. So I'm going to need you to be here to talk about some of the things you predicted. Excellent transition, Lee. Well done. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, here's the plan. Grant and I will briefly touch on some recruiting in the show today. The Sooners picked up some nice defensive commits since our last show. And also a few Oklahoma players have declared for the NFL draft, including one surprising name. But the majority of this episode will be looking back at preseason predictions made right here on West of Everest. Where were we right? Where were we wrong? This should be pretty fun. And honestly, I hope this kind of builds up our credibility a bit because 
I think you and I had some pretty good predictions back in August. But at the same time, we have some pretty big whiffs as well as college football predictions are wont to do. Also, before we move on to the recruiting news, I got to make one correction. On our last show, I talked extensively about Oklahoma's offensive play calls late in the Rose Bowl game. I said the Sooners ran their bread and butter double pull counter run play for the final time on first down with five-ish minutes to go in the fourth quarter on that that drive where Oklahoma needed a few first downs or two or three first downs and they would have won the game. Well, that was wrong. And as I listened back to the podcast, I realized I had made the mistake because the Sooners ran that bread and butter double counter or double pull counter play again on that next drive when they took over after Georgia had scored the tying touchdown with 55 seconds left to go in the fourth quarter. Apparently, they ran that play to the weak side of the formation. Rodney Anderson picked up some positive yards on it, so I apologize for the error. OU did, in fact, run that play one final time after I said the Sooners had ran it for the final time, so my bad on that one. So with that, let's jump in quickly to recruiting. OU gets commitments from two four-star linebackers and one five-star corner. At least he's a five-star, according to Rivals. Grant, uh, do you want to give us some info Some info on these guys? Yeah, Lee, these are some really big commitments, mostly just because they're on the right side of the ball, the defensive side. Of course, after that Rose Bowl debacle a week ago or, or last week, depending on when you're listening to this show, uh, it, it's really nice to know that maybe there's some some help coming in on the defensive side of the ball. Not only just help, but some highly regarded help as well. Lee will kind of start, uh, we'll, we'll get things kicked off with uh, with Nick Benito. He is an outside linebacker, kind of, he is 6'4", 200 pounds, uh, kind of a pass rushing specialist on the outside. He is from St. Thomas Aquinas in Florida, Lee, and that's a, that's a massive high school football program there in Florida. Nick Benito, he is a four-star recruit. Um, and of course, linebacker recruiting it has, has been hurting as of late. Also, linebacker depth, of course, has taken a hit these last couple of years with Tay Evans missing or missing out on the rest of his career at the beginning of last season because of concussions. You had John Michael Terry be banged up and hurt at the beginning of this year, forcing Kenneth Murray in the middle. You had Levi Draper get hurt uh, at the beginning of the season out for the year. So just the depth of the linebacker position has taken a huge hit. Nick Benito kicked, kicked things off right away. They got another linebacker commit the next day um, after his performance in the U.S. Army All-American Bowl, Deshaun White. He's a four-star outside linebacker. Originally committed to Texas A&M, and I I get the sense from just what I've read the last handful of months, this is a guy that OU really, really wanted. In fact, this is a guy that OU and a lot of the other Texas schools have been kind of jockeying for position for over the last handful of months. This is a guy who's very, very highly regarded um, throughout the region. He is only a, he, he's a fringe Rivals 250 guy. He is a four-star prospect. I think he's he's ranked 248th uh, in this class per rivals but he's a guy that that the big time guy uh, the big time programs in Texas want Texas Texas A&M OU they've really all wanted him he he had been a, a Texas A&M commitment for a while Sooners were able to flip him that's that, that's a really big recruiting win for the Sooners haven't seen a lot of tape on him from what I understand he's a uh, he, he is kind of on the smaller side he I think he's 220 pounds which is actually pretty big for a for a high school linebacker um, but he's on the shorter side. I think he's only six feet tall. But uh, from everything I've heard, he he is kind of a he he's a quicker guy who who likes to operate in space. And uh, the Sooners may have gotten a 
a a difference maker on the defensive side of the ball, especially in the box where you really need it. And Lee, the big one, the big commit that I think is is maybe the Sooners' biggest commit they've had since they got since they got Joe Mixon a handful of years ago, or, or maybe Caleb Kelly a couple of years ago, is the five star corner out of Bradenton, Florida, out of IMG Academy. Brendan Radley Hiles, also known as Bookie. He's got a really cool nickname. So on this show, we, he will always be referred to as Bookie. Uh, Lee, I think you're, you're probably looking at one of your starting cornerbacks at the start of next year. That's, that's how good this guy looks on tape when I watch him. Have, have you been able to see uh, uh, any tape of Bookie at all? I haven't seen anything from his, his high school tape. I just had a chance to watch some of his highlights from the U.S. Army All-American Bowl from Saturday, the day that he committed to OU and he looked good he had uh two nice pass breakups in that game one he basically assisted on an interception for one of his teammates and then later in the game he he knocked another pass away um I uh obviously it's it's nice to get a a cornerback for Oklahoma that's as highly regarded as this player is his size concerns me he's only listed at five foot eight that's five ten he's five ten I saw five eight so I mean so he's okay so at best, he's 5'10". I, I think he's either Rivals or 24-7 or one of those had him only at 5'8", uh, which is incredibly incredibly short. I mean, that's like Marcellia Sutton size playing corner. But, I mean, it seems like he plays bigger than he really is. I mean, he's good. He's got good ball skills, uh, which is all great. And he's, he's, a, he's a really nice player. Um, what concerns me, though, is that Oklahoma can get all of these these highly regarded defensive recruits which is which is fantastic and and Oklahoma needs it to to stay up there to compete with with the best teams the best defenses in college football but how these players are utilized is really what matters I mean this bookie cornerback Hiles he could be a really good player but if he is slotted into Oklahoma's starting lineup to play the same kind of defense Oklahoma has been playing this entire year where they just play a lot of zone and they have him 10 yards off the ball and and uh, they're not really utilizing or, or putting him in, in positions to really make a lot of plays like he can. It doesn't matter if he's a, a five-star player. It doesn't matter at all to me because he's he's not going to be asked to do what he can do or what his potential can be. And that's what concerns me the most about getting these highly regarded defensive players. That sounds great, but will they be utilized correctly and properly within the Oklahoma defensive scheme? And I don't know. And that's not, not to put a damper on getting three big recruits – that's just what really comes to mind to me whenever Oklahoma gets these these big name guys to commit to OU. Lee giving you quite the insight into where his his brain is right now on on the defensive side of the ball, or at least where uh, the Sooners' fortunes are right now on that side of the ball. I think uh, he he was very transparent there, and I I, I don't necessarily disagree with you. Um, I I. I I, I don't I don't think I, I've really been on the on the train. We we haven't really criticized Mike Stoops as as vociferously as maybe the internet has or, or other. And I that's that's intentional on our part. We we certainly have thoughts on this matter, and and I think we're just kind of being careful. But I I saw a handful of problems on the field at the Rose Bowl, and it wasn't just scheme. Now I I do think scheme probably is is the biggest problem on facing this defense right now. But at the same time, I will take all the help that the defensive side can get. And you know what? I, it, it's never a bad thing to add a five-star prospect. The, this, this is the highest-ranked uh, prospect in the secondary uh, as a commitment that OU has ever had, ever. Um, so, you know, take well, that for what you will. Good, good. And I'm, 
I, I'm excited. When I he he's a guy. When I watch his tape, and I, I'm I'm curious as to where you're seeing five five eight. He's definitely not five eight. He's 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 every bit as he's every bit of five ten five eleven. And I know that's not huge, but he's not he's not a stick out there. He is thick. He's he's a guy who looks ready to play Division one college football right now. He's not Dakota Austin out there. Uh, he's he's a guy who. When he steps on a campus, he's probably going to look bigger than all of OU's corners. I mean, right now. So, and and the thing that really stood out to me Lee, was was his ability to to go up and find the ball and to play the ball. That that's that was a a massive liability for OU's corners this year. Well, I just googled it real quick to just double check his his listing, and the first the first recruiting service that pops up is 24 seven sports. And on Google's page, it has kind of the first part explaining him. And it says Brendan Radley Hiles is a five foot eight, 155 pound wide receiver from Las Vegas. So clearly that's, that must be old. That must be a, uh, an old write up because when you click on it and it does, it's been updated and it says he's a cornerback, not a wide receiver. And it lists him at five ten, one eighty three. So, Maybe he has uh, grown two inches and put on thirty pounds of weight in the last year or two <laughs> since that last. Maybe, but I don't. Yeah, I don't. But that's the weird. It's it said he was from Las Vegas. I think this, this that must be the they must have it linked with the wrong person because he's. I know he he's an IMG guy out of Florida, but originally I think he's from Los Angeles. So he's he's actually a California guy. So I don't know if he was ever in Vegas or or what. But okay. it does it, it it doesn't matter. It's 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 irrelevant. He's a guy. It just. Google him. Go go watch some of his tape. I'm not a, I'm not a guy who's going to sit here and obsess over high school tape, but when you watch this guy, you can watch him for you can watch him just for a minute or so, and you can tell that this guy doesn't belong, or or actually better yet put, the guys he's playing against don't belong on the same field as him. This, this guy is a special player. This is a guy who is going to be an instant impact guy as soon as he steps on a campus, and he he's a guy that that you know I'm, I'm not expecting him to come in and be Darrell Revis, but. This is a guy who is who, who is who's, who's going to be a really good player for the Sooners, and and I'll take all the good cornerbacks that they can get. Just to clarify, Darrell Revis in his prime, not Darrell Revis the last like four years because he's been a shell of himself. I think that's what you meant. I think everyone knew exactly yeah. what I meant when I dropped Darrell Revis's name. All right, moving on from the recruits, a trio of Sooners declared for the NFL draft. Obviously, these are a trio of underclassmen because we already know that. Seniors like Baker Mayfield, of course, is going to be eligible for the draft. Dimitri Flowers is going to be gone, so on and so forth. So um, two of the names are what we uh, kind of figured. One, Mark Andrews. The other, Orlando Brown. They both announced on Twitter. And then the third name, a bit of a surprise, Devontae Lampkin on Twitter as well announced uh, after it was uh, reported, I believe, by Sooner Scoop that he, that he was going to go. And then, then Lampkin tweeted about it too. So uh, Lampkin, a redshirt sophomore, is going. Also, uh, Andrews, I believe, uh, a junior, redshirt junior, and then Orlando Brown was uh, was he a redshirt sophomore as well? Uh, I, yeah, he was a junior. Orlando Brown, he was a redshirt junior. Redshirt junior, yeah, that's right, because he because he played three years. So, so two of those three we expected. Uh, one of them, Lampkin, uh, kind of a surprise as far as Andrews go. Just a um, couple notes on him. Oklahoma's first ever Mackey Award winner. He's the all-time leading receiving tight end at Oklahoma. So I guess it's not a surprise that he's the first ever Mackey Award winner for the Sooners. Well, actually, that is a bit of a surprise considering they have uh, a lot of really good tight ends in, in the history of this program. And uh, Andrews likely to be the first tight end taken in the draft, unless unless a team is looking for more of a 
more of a blocking tight end, I guess, in the in the earlier rounds. But Andrews is definitely a, a, a nice receiving tight end. Of course, Orlando Brown never missed a start for the Sooners at left tackle. Just a massive, massive human being. He's going to be a he should be a surefire first round pick. Will be one of the first tackles taking as well. I mean, the guy is a mammoth, six eight, uh, three. 330 340 something like that maybe maybe even bigger than that uh so those two guys obviously are gone and then uh then Lampkin's interesting so um that's a that's a tough loss for Oklahoma with Lampkin declaring early Grant yeah I mean that's it's certainly not ideal um and, and of course I, I think that that was news that, that I that I think surprised a lot of people but really when you think about it it doesn't it doesn't surprise me now upon reflection Devontae is a guy who's always kind of struggled with grades um, in college. The, he had always struggled with his motor. It looks like Ruffin McNeil sort of got something out of him this year. And I, I think this is just a situation of, of a kid who just wants to go. And I think that's fine. Uh, that, that's fine. He's, he, he's a guy who, who wasn't a starter this year. You know, he, he probably was their best defensive lineman this year. Um, so, so obviously that is a that's probably a their loss, best like interior defensive interior lineman. defensive lineman. Thank you. That's probably more apt to, to describe Devonte. But but no, he's a guy who is he's got a lot of he's got a lot of ability. It just seemed like he was he struggled to consistently apply that ability. So we'll see. I, I don't know. I, he's he's got an NFL body. Obviously, it's going to really come down to his workouts and whatnot. Um, I I don't I wouldn't be particularly shocked if he's not drafted, but. Also, I would be surprised if he if he wows people with his physical uh, ability during the pre-draft process. What do you think, Lee? Yeah, I, like you said, he's six four, three thirty five. I mean, that's that's a massive human. He had twenty three tackles this past year. Five of those were tackles for loss. He had a sack uh, on Kenny Hill, I believe, is what the sack was in that second T or the the first TCU game. Uh, he's a good player. Uh, whenever, whenever he, I mean, he's just a massive guy. I mean, that's why he's going because, like you said, I mean, he's got the tools. It's just will he will he be able to figure it out? And it's just a it's a guy in the middle. He's like I mean, he's the biggest guy on, on the Oklahoma defensive line. And he just he's one of those players that's able to take up a lot of space in there. And now with him gone, Oklahoma is looking to uh, you know, in the upcoming recruiting class, you got Jordan Kelly from Tulsa Union coming in. He's a three star. He's about three hundred pounds, so not quite three thirty five. And then you got Dylan and I still have not figured out how to how to say Dylan's last name, Fama Ta Tau. Uh, he's he's also a returning player. He's about three oh five, so he he's a he'll be in line for some playing time next year as one of those big beefy defensive interior linemen. Uh, but with with Lampkin gone, yeah, that's that's tough, especially when you see you see players in the the national championship game, for instance, Alabama and Georgia. You got these these big guys in the front, more so Alabama, not not really as much Georgia. They take up space. And uh, it's just nice to have a guy like that in Lampkin, but now he's not going to be there. And so it'll be interesting to see who ends up uh, stepping in and, and playing well. And then, of course, Neville Gallimore, too. I forgot about him. He's a he's a player that just he just didn't really didn't really do a whole lot this year. We didn't say his name a whole lot, which is unfortunate this past season. Yeah, and I, and I think we'll probably get more into Neville the, the further down we get when we're talking about predictions. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. So that is the NFL draft, guys. One final note before we go back and look at our preseason predictions. Chris from San Antonio has sent us a letter, an email. Uh, I, I just had, had noticed this before we started recording today, Chris, so I haven't gotten a chance to read it all the way through. I'll take a look. We'll touch on Chris's letter next show. I believe it's about the, the, the Rose Bowl, as, as you all might expect. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll look over that, and then we'll, we'll talk about it and touch on what Chris had to say in our next episode next week. So 
Without further ado, let's look back to our preseason predictions. All these predictions came from West of Everest, episode number one, which was our debut episode, of course. So let's see how we did. We're going to start with, um, let's see, uh, we're going to start with OU's leading receiver, how we predicted that. I'm going to save our best predictions and our worst predictions for the very end. And I actually pulled clips from that first episode. So we'll save Grant's, Grant and I's best and worst for the very end. So uh, before we get there, we'll just go through all the others that aren't you know, either the best prediction or really isn't the worst prediction. And starting with Oklahoma's leading receiver. Before the season began, in late August, both Grant and I each predicted that Kentucky grad transfer Jeff Bidette would lead Oklahoma in receiving. And at the time, it seemed like a pretty good prediction, right, Grant? I mean, that, that seemed like a, a decent choice. Yeah, he was a new player, but we didn't really know about any other receivers outside of Mark Andrews. And yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, I thought at the time it was, you know, they had they had Mark Andrews back and then Jeff Bidette was really their only their only other guy who had, you know, a lot of experience at the Division One level and, and had produced. So so I just kind of assumed that he would step right in, especially with Baker Mayfield, and he would produce like that. Obviously, that wasn't the case. And, and that doesn't mean that he wasn't, you know, he, he didn't make an impact this year because he certainly did. But it, it seemed, you know, that was mostly in the first half of the season. I, I believe injuries really kind of derailed his season in the second half. So Jeff Bidette was not the leading receiver for Oklahoma. In fact, when all the dust was settled, Marquise Brown ended up leading Oklahoma in receiving yards. Now I got to make sure I make it clear. OU's leading receiver, we're talking receiving yards. And Marquise Brown, 1,095 yards this past season, 57 catches. Excuse me. He scored seven touchdowns, averaged just over 19 yards per catch in 13 games. Mark Andrews had more catches than Marquise Brown. He had 62 catches, and he had more touchdowns than Brown, but Andrews had fewer yards. He was number two with 958. So Marquise Brown, the leading receiver in his first season at Oklahoma, pretty impressive. Yeah, and you know, for me, Lee, that came out of nowhere. I, I had I had infamously said now that I didn't think Marquise Brown looked physically ready to to produce at the Division One level, and I was wrong completely. Uh, he's a, you know, he, he is a he's a true playmaker and game breaker in every sense of the word. He is he he's one of the more dynamic receivers that that OU has ever had, and he I, I I'm I'm surprised by that. I, I did not expect that at all when he stepped on campus. So where did Jeff Bidette finish? in the uh, the receiving pecking order. Jeff Bidette, fifth, the fifth leading receiver for Oklahoma. He had 26 catches, 400 yards, and three touchdowns. Here was the top five. You got Brown, then Andrews, one and two. Number three, CeeDee Lamb. Not that surprising. Great season. Great true freshman year for CeeDee Lamb. He had 46 catches, 807 yards, and seven touchdowns. Fourth leading receiver for Oklahoma, Dimitri Flowers. Same amount of catches as Jeff Bidette, 26, but more yards, 464, and more touchdowns than Bidette. Five touchdowns for Flowers through the air, and I, I know he added at least one, maybe two rushing touchdowns. I, it could have been more if I'm misremembering. So Dimitri Flowers, the fourth best. Jeff Bidette, the fifth leading receiver for Oklahoma. Next up, Oklahoma's leading tackler for 2017. And before the season began, and this is another one where Grant and I were the same on in our prediction. I said Caleb Kelly. Grant said Caleb Kelly. And I think our, our reasoning behind that, Grant, was just, well, he's 
probably the most talented player on the defense. He plays linebacker. He's going to have a lot of opportunities, and he's going to take a, a huge step in another year in the system as a sophomore. But Caleb Kelly was not the leading tackler in 2017. In fact, it was Emmanuel Beal, another linebacker. Beal, 95 tackles, seven of those for loss. He had a half sack, also had one interception. How about Emmanuel Beal as a leading tackler? Did not see that coming, Grant. I don't think that upon reflectionally that doesn't necessarily surprise me seeing as that if I was an offensive coordinator and I wanted to run the ball I would run it at Emmanuel Beal pretty much every single time so I it, it doesn't necessarily surprise me you go back and watch the Rose Bowl see what side they were running to so um <laughs> yeah that's, uh, that's some good insight right there you know I Caleb Kelly just having such a quiet season was was really surprising to me it almost felt sort of like a sophomore slumpy type season and honestly, at this point, I don't have a great answer for it. Uh, it could have been scheme. It could have been Caleb maybe just not being ready for primetime. But, you know, he, he showed flashes last year where he was just spectacular. And I don't necessarily think that we saw those same flashes this year, Lee. What do you think? No, I mean, he, he, looked, he looked good at times. And I, I think this is another example of, uh, you know, we get uh, Oklahoma gets Caleb Kelly, a five-star player, you know, great linebacker, just got good size. He's 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 long, he's athletic, and you know he's he had a good freshman year and kind of came on strong late. And this year he was supposed to really step up. And and I think a lot of it's, I I think the only uh, the only explanation is is really scheme. It's just I don't I don't know if he if he is playing the right kind of defense for his abilities. And for example, I I used to always say uh, I like the Bears. I like the Chicago Bears. I'm a Bears fan. Uh, that's that's a team I like, to, and, and for so many years they always had a really good defense. Brian Urlacher in the middle of the field playing, playing middle linebacker. But Lovey Smith as the head coach always ran the cover two, the Tampa two defense, and that's a defense that really asked the, the middle linebacker to cover a lot of field, to to play a lot in coverage, and not really ever attack a whole lot, and not blitz like ever. So Brian Urlacher, he he got some sacks, but he very rarely ever blitzed. And I feel like he was such a good player that if he was in a different kind of system, like if he played for the Ravens or I guess nowadays like the, the Broncos and a defense like that, a very big time attacking defense, Brian Urlacher would have been even better. He would have been an even better linebacker. And he just I mean, he, he was a great player and he, he played. He's, he's a Hall of Famer, future Hall of Famer. But he could have been even better based on what what the Bears did with him scheme wise, and so I'm going to use that as an example with Caleb Kelly. I think he could be a, a, a great linebacker. I just don't know if he's being properly utilized. Let this be known. What is this episode 36 of West of Everest? The episode in which Lee thinks that Caleb Kelly is just as good at, as Brian Urlacher in his prime in the NFL. I can't believe you just said that. Yeah. Insane. Yeah, and and and. Mark it down. Caleb Kelly will be returning punts next year, just like Erlacher did when he was playing at New Mexico. Wouldn't that be something if you actually got that right? That'd be <laughs> hilarious. So where was Caleb Kelly in the pecking order for tacklers? Well, in fact, he was the sixth leading tackler. It wasn't even in the top five. It went Emmanuel Beal, freshman Kenneth Murray with 78. Oboe had 76. Um, Stephen Parker and Parnell Motley each tied for fourth with 63 apiece. And Will Johnson fifth with 62 so Caleb Kelly 56 tackles three and a half tackles for loss picked up a sack and one interception and also one huge fumble recovery touchdown and also one huge force fumble in the Rose Bowl I, I gotta tell you Lee I do not like to see a cornerback in the top five tacklers on on the team that's that's not a that's not a good thing especially a cornerback who didn't start every game either that's not good uh, a cornerback is that what you said you're talking about Motley a corner a, a corner okay. yes gotcha Next up, 
Oklahoma's sack leader for 2017. And, well, we thought this was an easy one preseason and ended up being an easy one. Both Grant and I picked Oboe, and, of course, Oboe led Oklahoma in sacks with eight this year. The second leading sack guy for Oklahoma, kind of a surprising name. Actually, not kind of, definitely a surprising name. Kenneth Mann with five sacks this year for the Sooners, and DJ Ward coming in third with four and a half sacks. But Kenneth Mann at, at number two, he'll be back. That's that's certainly surprising and, and good for him. He had a, he had a nice year and since some spot uh, some spot duty. He had a nice year, yeah. And I'm you know he, he he's a nice depth piece to have. I don't know if he's a guy that you want to you know throw out there for ninety percent of your defensive snaps. But you know he he was a guy who was always around the football and it seemed like he always made a play when he was on the field. It's, it's never bad to have a guy like that. I, I think he'll continue to be a third down situational pass rusher here, or at least I, I hope they recruit to the point where that's all he can be. Um, that, that would be nice. So I, I'm looking at these numbers, and of course it's 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 no surprise with Oboe, but I, I got a. It, it was it was it was a slightly di- disappointing season for Oboe, was it not? Would you agree with me? Uh, he only finished with eight sacks, and I, and I know I know he was the co-defensive Big Twelve Player of the Year. But but it, it really seemed like in the second half of the season he he really did just disappear at times. Yeah, I don't I don't know if that was um, other defense defense other offenses kind of trying to eliminate his presence and making it difficult for him to rush the passer, or if it was a lot of the times Oklahoma just didn't get a lot of great chances to to pin their ears back and and put other offenses kind of on their heels and, and allow him to really get after the guys. I, I don't know. I I didn't really watched that closely when I was kind of going back to a lot of these games it was more watching the secondary but uh, I mean I thought he had a, had an okay year I thought he had a good year um, it's just uh, the way the Oklahoma defense was set up this season it just didn't seem like sacks were something that that they were going to get a whole lot of to be quite honest with you and um, which, which playing in the big 12 that is asinine to me I don't that should be the number one playing in this conference that should be the number one priority of your defense every year is to find as many pass rushers as humanly possible uh, that's that, that's going to continue to be, and maybe it's just, it's a situation where they've looked for him and they've just kind of whiffed on him. But I, I mean, I'm looking at these totals: Lee Oboe with eight sacks, and then you got Man and Ward with five and four and a half respectively. That's not that's not good enough for OU. You know, we, we those those numbers need to be higher. Uh, they they need to get after the quarterback a lot more. I don't, and I don't think I'm saying anything ground or groundbreaking by by saying that either. You know, that four and a half number for DJ Ward, I just I really wish it was five and a half, man. I just he had that free run at Jake Fromm on that final drive in the fourth quarter and, and he couldn't bring down Fromm. That would have created the a fourth down or a, a second down and long or something like that. And that that could have changed the entire game. But I mean it's tough because DJ Ward had such a nice year. I I thought he played really well this past season. Next up. We predicted Oklahoma's most important offensive player, of course, besides Baker Mayfield. Before the year, I kind of, I kind of uh, cheated on this one. I, I said the offensive line as a whole, just being healthy, staying healthy, and and Oklahoma's offensive line did stay healthy, and Oklahoma's offense was downright historic this year. Grant, you said Mark Andrews, and that was a pretty good player considering that he won the Mackey Award, but. And you have a chance to to rebut me on this, but I put as the most important offensive player besides Mayfield. How about Dimitri Flowers? Would you go with Flowers? Yeah, I, I would. If if I had to pick one single person, it would be Flowers probably, just because he was he's just kind of the Swiss Army knife, and and I 
I, I think that's a guy that, that a lot of people probably aren't really thinking about when we're, when we're talking about who they're losing. I think he's a big loss. He, he might, outside of Mayfield, he might be the biggest loss on this offense just because I, with, with all, the, all the things that he was able to do, think of just all, the, all of the sticky situations they got out of this season with, with Dimitri Flowers making a big play. There's a lot of them if you, if you really go back. And so we'll, we'll see if that's something that they can replicate with Jeremiah Hall, who is the guy that they, um, from this past recruiting class, the 2017 recruiting class that they recruited um, in the hopes of, of replacing Flowers. I know Ricky DeBerry has moved over to that position, so he's going to have an opportunity to win that spot. So we'll see, but yeah, Lee, I, I would. I'm glad you brought up flowers because I was sitting here trying to rack my brain, thinking, you know, who is it actually? And I was going over this monologue in my head about how we really can't, you know, pick anybody because it just honestly, just pick which quarter of the season it was, and you could pick someone new. I feel like, you know, in those first four games, you could pick Trey Sermon, and you know, in the middle games, you could pick Andrews. I feel like there's a there's a couple games a year you could have picked C.D. Lamb. So, and maybe in the last half of the year, you pick. Rodney Anderson so uh and she I didn't even I didn't even mention Marquise Brown so uh he was he was very much you know probably the most important offensive player in those Kansas State and Oklahoma State games so ah uh, it's just uh just, just an, an embar- embarrassment of riches is an embarrassment of riches is, is what I was about to say yeah so yeah Dimitri Flowers that the, the challenges to you NFL you're going to get an, an incredibly talented player that can do a lot of different things and has an incredible football IQ. You better utilize Dimitri Flowers well, whoever picks him up, because if you utilize him correctly, you're going to get a heck, heck, dare I say, a hell of a football player. I think he can play tight end in the league for sure. Next up, Oklahoma's sleeper impact player on defense. And we defined sleeper at the time as a player who's going to have an impact on defense that nobody's really talking about going into the year that no one's really thought of a whole lot. And this was a difficult one. And at the time, back in August, whenever you and I were trying to predict this, it was incredibly difficult. Grant, you went with Chance Sylvie, the nickelback, because you, I believe your, your reasoning was Mike Stoops' nickelback position is uh, always uh, an important spot in that defense. And I went with Mark Jackson as a defensive end. I thought uh, I heard a lot of good things about him in camp and about how his motor was so high, and, and, and he was incredible at rushing the passer, and I thought he'd be able to, to – a guy that would, that would stand out. Well, really – and this was tough, tough to nail down one player, I think, as a sleeper impact player. So I, I came up with three different names, and, and, and you tell me where I'm wrong. I went – I feel like the, the actual sleeper impact player on defense was either DJ Ward, Kenneth Mann, or Trey Norwood. Those are the three names that I came up with. Who do you think? Yeah, I, I would I, I would toss Norwood out of there just because he only started four or five games. But I, I also don't. I don't. But when I mean, he came in think, though, when he came in, he really he really shored up. He that did. Secondary he kind of for... he kind of solidified the secondary just in terms of the the secondary after after Norwood came in stopped giving up long pass plays, which obviously was mm-hmm. was a big deal. Um, out of those other guys, Ward, man, I, I guess I'd have to go with Ward just because I think he was consistently the best player on the defensive line this year just because he never really you know never really got his butt kicked and he never really dominated either he was just a nice stabilizing consistent force on the defensive line this year and I, I don't necessarily know if I if I anticipated him having such a such a good year what do you think yeah no I, I think I think it's DJ Ward for sure and uh, the other two kind of get uh, honorable mention uh Chance Sylvie, 15 tackles, one tackle for loss. Uh, you know, he'll probably see a little more time next year. Mark Jackson didn't play much at all. He only had seven tackles. 
He got a sack. I, th- I think his sack came in garbage time in one of the games where Oklahoma was winning by a lot. So, um, you know, both of our picks there didn't really pan out, and that that was a difficult prediction. And and you know, good to see DJ Ward play as well as he did in, in his last year with OU. Moving on, Oklahoma's impact freshman on offense. And I picked C.D. Lamb, and I think you wanted to go with Lamb as well, Grant, at the time in August, but just to be different, you went with somebody else. Does that sound about right? That's exactly what happened. I remember that that conversation fondly. I think I went with Grant Calcaterra. Yeah, yeah. So so you want, So to be fair, I think we both really picked Lamb, but you wanted to mix things up a bit and go with somebody else. And you went with Grant Calcaterra. Okay, that, that's a decent pick. Um, and I think the, the true offensive freshman impact player, C.D. Lamb was 1A. And you got to go Trey Sermon 1B. And Trey Sermon definitely out of absolute nowhere this past season. Faded late in the year when Rodney Anderson came on. And, and Rodney Anderson became potentially the best running back in, in college football. But what a year for, for C.D. Lamb and, and, and what a year for Trey Sermon, a, a guy that, that I liked you know, coming out. I, I liked all the running backs. Uh, but a player that you were definitely surprised to see have such a good year and have such a, a big impact in, on Oklahoma this season. Yeah, just based off of you know what I saw of him in the spring game, and I know it's the spring game. I know it's hard to draw conclusions from that, but he just didn't look like a guy who was ready for the speed of of, of Division One football. And honestly, at times when you watch him, he he still sometimes doesn't because he, he it always kind of seems like he's moving slower than he really is. And I think that's just how he looks. And you know, I was wrong about Trey Sermon. Trey Sermon is just a really solid player, and and I think that's who he's going to continue to be for OU for the next three years. Think of a guy like Chris Brown. I mean, Trey Sermon is, is basically Chris Brown um, with with maybe a little bit more of a skill set. So Trey Sermon ended up being just a, a hell of a find for the staff. He, he was a great freshman. Second leading rusher for OU this year behind Rodney Anderson, 744 yards, five touchdowns, averaged just over six yards per carry. Next up, Oklahoma's impact freshman on defense – Grant, you went, with, you went with Kenneth Murray, the linebacker, and I decided to go with Robert Barnes, who was a, you know, he's a five-star safety. Barnes ended up getting limited time here and there, had 10 tackles. Of course, Kenneth Murray, second leading tackler on the team. I'd say by default, Kenneth Murray was the impact freshman on defense. I mean, he was, the, I believe, the Big 12 defensive freshman of the year. Um, all the tackles he played at, started every game. Uh, again, maybe Trey Norwood, uh, was, was Trey, hold on, was Trey Norwood a freshman, or am I forgetting that he was? Was he a sophomore? I, I, he is a he is a true freshman. Yeah, okay, yeah. I, I had a I had a brief lapse, so um, I'd say by default, Kenneth Murray was that impact freshman on defense, and then late in the year, Trey Norwood came in and, and played pretty well uh, too. Is that is that how you would describe it as well? Exactly. Yeah, I, and I, I I had high hopes for Robert Barnes too. He had some kind of nagging injuries as well over the course of the season. Robert Barnes, I think, is a guy you're going to see start uh, at safety next year. So I, I think we're going to see a lot of Robert Barnes. Robert Barnes, I, I think, is a guy who's going to develop into an all-conference type player for OU. He he just he just looks the part out there. And and remember, this was his first year back from a from kind of a catastrophic leg injury, his senior year of of high school. So next year will be that second year back, and, and I think physically he's he's going to be a lot more ready to play. Robert Barnes, I I don't think there's going to be a huge drop off from him and Stephen Parker. I, I I really like Robert Barnes. And then, of course, with Kenneth Murray, he started every single game, and I, I, I had made the comments about him in the Rose Bowl and how he didn't play well. Uh, I'll say this about Kenneth Murray. I think his, his athletic ability is obvious just by looking at him. He's got to get better. He, he's, he's, he has to get better. 
And, uh, you know, this is going to be a really important offseason for him. It, it's there's been talk that that he's going to be, you know, moving to the outside, which I which is more his natural position. You know, he had never played middle linebacker before. So I, I think that has to be taken into account when you're judging, you know, his overall body of work for the entire season. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he's starting in Emmanuel Beal's spot next year. I think that's that's a much more natural area for him. And I actually like Kenneth Murray there. He's a big, tall guy who could maybe set the edge uh, in the run game on the outside. I think I think that's a much better fit for him. Got a couple overarching predictions, not necessarily individual predictions to go through next. We predicted what Oklahoma's final regular season record would be. Grant, you said... 10 and 2. So you were you know you you were not as high on this Sooners team back in August. I predicted 11 and 1. Only game that Oklahoma would lose would be Ohio State. Of course, I was wrong about the game that Oklahoma would lose, but in the end Oklahoma was 11 and 1 in the regular season. So I feel pretty good about that and and nobody saw that Iowa State loss coming. Did I can't remember. Did you did you decide what what game I, th- I think you said that Oklahoma would lose to Ohio State and then just would lose an, a random Big 12 game. I said random Big 12. I think I threw out um, – no, I didn't throw out Kansas State because I remember a giant thing saying that Kansas State is never really much of a threat to OU because of the talent level. That didn't look great, of Well, course, I mean, technically you were right because they, Oklahoma did lose a random Big 12 game. So. Yeah, it was it was a road game I think I threw out there uh, as a – it might have been Oklahoma State, to be honest with you. So 11-1, 10-2. Next up, some Big 12 predictions. And, and a reminder, we do have our best predictions and worst predictions still to come. So we're, we are, we're, we're skipping some right now. It's because those are going to be in our best and worst. So, so hang tight. So and this is an interesting one that I'm not sure if we have an answer to now that the season's over. The question was before the year, which Big 12 team is being overvalued heading into the season? Basically, what, what team is, is you know, the media and kind of the, you know, the national, I guess, fans are thinking, oh, this team's really good, but actually you and I thought we're, we're not going to be that good. You and I both said Texas. And I honestly, I don't know if Texas, it, I mean, I, I think technically we're correct, but I was looking back at the, the media predictions for Texas, and Texas finished exactly where the Big 12 media predicted Texas to finish in the conference, fourth. So I, I think Kansas State might actually be this because Kansas State was predicted to actually finish third in the Big 12. And they finished yeah, uh, but, a game or two back behind that. Yeah, but where people but Kansas, Kansas State, I don't think was in the preseason top 25 like Texas was. Yeah, people weren't pre- people weren't predicting uh, Kansas State to get to the college football playoff like people were predicting Texas to do. I mean, this was this was shooting fish in a barrel. I, there, <laughs> tech- okay, yeah. So Texas is the right answer. Yeah, Texas, I, I don't know how you could see what they've been over the last almost decade now and think that they're ready to go from a 6-7 and seven team to a 10-11 win team in one year. I, I think you you had to be crazy to think that. And, you know, we, we saw it play out over the course of the season. That's It was a team that, that has some pieces, that has some really nice pieces. But, I mean, overall, they're just they're not built to be that successful in the Big 12. And they're 6-6. Six and six. Uh, that, that's the reason why. So, I, like I said, again, shooting fish in a barrel. I th- that one was obvious. Next up, more Big 12 preseason predictions. We predicted who would play in the Big 12 championship game. Grant, you said OU versus Kansas State, and I said Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State. I said a rematch of Bedlam. Of course, in actuality, TCU ended up making it against Oklahoma, so we got one half of it correct. Uh, you know, I, I think, I mean, you were trying to think outside the box with Kansas State. 
I thought, I mean, my prediction was kind of the one that most people thought would be a Bedlam rematch because Oklahoma and Oklahoma State were the, the two best teams kind of you know, going into the year. Uh, I mean, after a month of the of the season, I guess it, it looked more like TCU would probably make it, but I did not see TCU being as, as good as, as the Frogs were this year, so good on them for making it that far, and, and you know, we, we both got OU correct, and that's all that matters, really. So the next prediction, which team or what team uh, on a national stage, we're talking national now, what team or what teams are being overvalued going into the season? So which teams are people pumping up big time? But in actuality, Grant and I were like, no, nah, I don't know if they're really that good. For me, and I, I, this is a big swing and a miss, I said Clemson because I thought the Deshaun Watson loss would be absolutely huge for them. Of course, Clemson goes on and makes the playoffs. So I, I, I whiffed on that one. Grant, I thought you were, your prediction was, was solid. You, you, you said the two Rose Bowl participants from the previous year, USC and Penn State. How do you feel about that now? I think I nailed the USC one. Uh, USC played, uh, they just didn't play very well over the course of the year. I, I thought they, they, had, they had too many losses on the offensive side of the ball, uh, especially on the offensive line. I figured they would struggle to protect Darnold, which happened all season long. And also, I just wasn't necessarily sold on Darnold. The guy who only started eight or nine college games and uh, an offense that really didn't ask him to do a whole lot down the field did this year. And, and you watch Darnold, and you know his, his talent is undeniable. He does. He's got all the measurables. And I, I, think, I think he's a really good player. Um, I, I just think now we're, we're, we're going to be just perpetually in that in that loop of, of USC overratedness. And I'm just, uh, I think a lot of people really forgot who the head coach was at USC when they were making kind of all these outlandish playoff and national championship predictions. Clay Helton ain't getting, ain't getting them anywhere near the college football elite. I, I'm sorry to say. Uh, so I, I, I think USC is a program you can kind of, I don't know, perpetually write off until, until Clay Helton is no longer their head coach. And also Penn State, you know, I, I, I actually, I don't think I got this one right. I thought Penn State was a really good team this year. Um, they they finished 10 and two, and I, I think there's a lot of people who are, who is pro- projecting them to maybe win the Big Ten, get to the playoff. None of that happened. But Penn State really was a good team this year. They lost two games, I think, by six points total, um, both on the road, both games where they had the lead late in the game. Uh, Penn State was good. They They handled Washington pretty easily. Um, I, I think Penn State probably on you know head to head on a neutral field is, is better than your most disappointing team, Clemson. I think Penn State was probably a better team than Clemson this year. And man, I think I think Clemson would have would have shut down that Penn State offense quite easily if they would have played. And I think, and, been, I think I, and I think Clemson really would have struggled to score on Penn State. Yeah, probably. I, I, th- I think that was yeah, that, that it, was it, the thing a low that, scoring game. That was one of the things we didn't really touch on on last week, and I do kind of maybe want to take a, a bit of a victory lap. I had been saying all year that Clemson's offense is overrated. They're not dynamic. They're really going to struggle to move the ball once they go up against a good defense, and, and that seemed to to play out perfectly when they played Alabama. I they, I think I don't even think they had over a hundred yards of offense going into the fourth quarter of that game. So that was I, I just I'm going to spike the football a little bit and, <laughs> and just so everyone knows how how right I was about Clemson's offense all season long. Yeah, you got that one right. Good call. Next up, more national predictions. What team or what teams are being undervalued going into the year? And uh, I said LSU 
and I used Matt Canada as the offensive coordinator as as the reason because they might have a good offense this year. Well, I'm pretty sure Matt Canada's got fired or he left. So that was a huge whiff. LSU was fine this season, but I don't think I, they weren't really they weren't being over or undervalued. They were being properly rated going into the season. So I missed that. Grant, you said Stanford. How do you feel about that pick now? I mean, I that one was completely wrong. Didn't they go? I think they were nine and five this year, weren't they? Stanford? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they made the, the Pac-12 yeah, title game. Nine and, and five. They were nine and three in the regular season, lost the Pac-12 title game, lost their bowl game. So, uh, you know, I, I, I stand by that pick. I think that was the sound pick. I mean, it was, it was they went 10 and three in a down year and they returned 16 starters. I, I, I thought that was, that was kind of a slam dunk pick. Maybe, maybe Stanford doesn't have the staying power. We all think they do, but they lost five games this year. And I think they, you know, they, they lost you know, pretty decisively to the five teams they played this year that were better than them. So, I don't know, Stanford, I, I, they'll be interested to see. I'm going to be interested going forward to see how, what, what sort of staying power Stanford has. I, I think uh, the job that, that David Shaw has done there and, and Jim Harbaugh before him has been really impressive. We'll see if they can continue to recruit at that level with those rigorous academic uh, standards. And just let me just back up real fast. Just the overvalued team, You one of those was USC that you predicted. And, and I think that was the correct team as far as what team was overvalued. And you got that right. So USC was that team at the end of the year. And then for this one, the undervalued team, I think probably Notre Dame is the right, the right answer, right? Either Notre Dame or probably Miami. For the undervalued team going into the season? Yeah. Yeah. You mean not the team that just lost in the national championship game last night? Well, where was Georgia the, the, in, the, in the rankings to start the season? I mean, yeah, you could use Georgia too, but I mean, I, I think Georgia. I, I don't, don't think even, Notre Dame is in the I, top twenty-five. Oh, Notre Dame always starts in the top twenty-five. They probably were. I don't think they um, were. I, I I think Georgia was a fringe top twenty-five team to start the season. Yeah. So okay. So so Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Georgia. I mean, I, so I guess Georgia because they made it that far. I think I mean Georgia I think is by far the the surprise of the season. They they, they went 6 and 6 last year and 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 made it to the national championship game and that's that's very impressive. All and right. surprising. All right, we'll go with Georgia then for that the right one. All right, so we're getting closer to the best and worst predictions. Before we get to that, two more to go. We predicted who the four playoff teams would be and we'll start with you Grant it looks like you got one of the four correct. You predicted Alabama, Ohio State, Stanford, and Auburn. So you actually did predict two SEC teams to make it. You just got uh, you got one of the two uh, incorrect. It ended up being Georgia. And for me, I got two of four. I said I said Alabama, Ohio State, OU, and Florida State, which they were erased in Week One when DeAndre Francois got injured. Uh, looking at that, I mean, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm happy that I got two of the four correct. And, uh, I mean, I guess you got to get a little bit of credit for getting two SEC teams in or predicting that for the first time that, that there'd be two from the same conference. That's interesting. You just got one the team wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, predictions are, are just that they're just predictions. They're, they're educated guesses. And if you get them right, people are going to be, you know, clamoring about how, how right you are when, when all it really is, it's just a guess. And, and we can never, you know, some years you'll have good years, some years you'll have bad years. So, you know, I, I, I was going off the information that we had at the beginning of the season, and that seemed to make sense to me. 
And uh, I, I would have gotten two out of the four if Auburn would have beaten Georgia for a second time. One more, and this and this one was. Uh, I mean, this this is a slam dunk. I mean, every here's the thing: everybody should have gotten this prediction correct. We did. You and I did. Who will win the national championship? You said Alabama. I said Alabama because you and I both use the rule. Until Alabama doesn't have Nick Saban anymore and is not Alabama, we're just going to by default pick Bama. So if you're out there and you're a college football writer or a pundit or, and you didn't pick Bama to win at all this year, again, I think we said it in our preview podcast or in, in our first podcast, you're just trying too hard. And even though Bama snuck into the playoff, well, here we are, Bama, national champions. I think you summed that up perfectly, Lee. Okay, so now on to the best and worst. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to give, I'll start with uh, my one of my two best predictions and then one of your two best predictions, Grant. Then we'll go over to one of our two worst predictions and so on and so forth. We each have two of each. So first off, we're going to start with sleeper offensive player. And Grant, you said Marcellius Sutton, so that ended up not being true. But here's what I said back in our episode one preview show about who I thought the sleeper offensive player would be. For this, I'm going to go with wide receiver Marquise Brown, another junior college transfer. I talked about Marcellius Sutton earlier. Marquise Brown played a year of junior college. Now he's with Oklahoma. He hasn't been talked about a whole lot around. Uh, it's, it's When I've talked to fellow media members, it just, we don't talk about Marquise Brown a whole lot. And, for whatever reason, I just have a feeling that he is going to be a player that Oklahoma tries to get the ball to in space to make plays. Uh, this past week, we talked to Caleb Kelly, who we both agree will lead the team in tackles. And I asked Caleb Kelly about the scrimmage, the last scrimmage they had on the previous Saturday. And I asked him who were the offensive players who were the most difficult to tackle. And Marquise Brown was one of the players he brought up and said that Marquise Brown was actually able to make Caleb Kelly miss in the open field and so that made me even more confident about my pick of Marquise Brown being a sleeper guy in offense that really nobody's talking about number one receiver Marquise Brown you nailed it good job I, I mean I'm I'm happy you were right I Marquise Brown's a lot of fun to watch I'm really happy the Sooners have him for for at least a year or two more he's he's awesome all right next up Grant let's play one of your better predictions this year and the next topic is which Big 12 team would be better than people think they're going to be. Now, my answer to this is actually in the worst predictions. But Grant, your answer is in the best predictions. And here's what you had to say. I think a team that um, is uh, does have some talent on their team and is getting better, especially because they have a they have a bright head coach and they're good at the skill positions. Is Iowa State? Um, the Sooners went to Ames last year and played on a Thursday night there, and I was pretty I was I, I was pretty impressed with Iowa State, uh, just how well they were coached. They didn't miss a lot of tackles. Um, they they have some talent. Um, their their starting quarterback Jacob Park is a legitimate major conference quarterback. Um, he was a he was a high four star guy. Originally went to Georgia. You can say what you want about Georgia, but they've had a lot. They've recruited a lot of talent at the quarterback position um, over the last decade. Um, and of course, senior wide receiver Alan Lazard, um, arguably the most physically gifted receiver in the entire conference. Um, I this is a team that that I think is. Um, is realistically going to win six or seven games and is really going to be a pain in the ass for a lot of the teams in the Big 12 this year. Good call, Grant. 
outside of Jacob Park, could I have? <laughs> I don't think I could have been. I don't think I could have been any more right about anything that I said. I'll, I'll I'll spike the football one more time for another great Grant prediction. I mean, Jacob Park. How about that? I mean, it's kind of interesting that that was like one of your reasons why they'd be so good, and he was actually kind of holding them back early in the year. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I. And I, I'm surprised that that it turned out that way. But that's I mean, all they needed was was a guy just to just to drive the car. That's all they needed just to to distribute it to their skill position guys. And they did, they had a really good group of skill guys. I don't know if we talked about it, but Iowa State did beat Memphis Lee in their bowl game, and they did it pretty impressively. I, they, Memphis didn't didn't do much on on offense, which I think we had kind of alluded to that maybe they, maybe they'd be able to slow down Memphis. So. Iowa State, as a, that was, they were a, a really solid football team this year. I thought you know, they didn't, they had you know that that two or three week span in the middle of the season where they got a ton of credit, you know, where they beat OU and TCU, and then they kind of fell off the the radar a little bit. And, and I don't I don't know if that was fair. Iowa State's a really good team, and um, I, I think they were a bona fide top twenty five team all year long, even if the record doesn't doesn't say that they are. Yeah, I agree. And also too, they they pretty much shut down Memphis with, in which. It was a home game for Memphis and still got a W in that game, in that bowl game. Now on to our first of the worst predictions, and we're sticking with the same topic. Which Big 12 team do you think will be better than people think? And I got to say, I whiffed. And I'm going to go with Kansas. Uh, this was a tough one for me because I don't think Kansas will be – like they're going to finish in the middle part of the Big 12 or anything like that. But basically what I'm just saying, I think they're going to be more competitive than they've been in recent memory. David Beatty, I think, is a is a good head coach going into his third year. Um, basically, I was looking at their schedule. Their first nine games of the year are where they're going to need to get their wins. They're going to need to get at least three wins, maybe four, because they won two games last year. Because they finished off the year with Texas, Oklahoma, and Oklahoma State, which it's hard to imagine them winning any of those games. So I'm going to go with Kansas being a little bit better than people are giving them credit for. Okay, I disagree. I think they're going to be just a doormat again. I think they're going to get stomped. <laughs> that, I'm so glad that you, that, that you left that little part back in there. That is great because you could not have been more wrong about that. They totally were the doormat again, and they got stomped in all of their games again. Yeah, yeah, that was a uh, that was a bad one. That was not one of my not one of my best moments. Uh, David Beatty, I don't know if he's a very good coach at all, and I for some reason thought he was. So, uh, well, you know what? You spiked the football a little bit on that one, but let's go to one of your worst predictions here first. And this topic is Oklahoma's most important player on defense. And I said it would be Kenneth Murray or whoever plays middle linebacker extensively. Well, I think you can make the case that Kenneth Murray was the most important player because when he actually when he played well here and there, Oklahoma played pretty well on defense. But when he didn't play well, that defense got gashed quite a bit. Um but here's what Grant had to say when tasked with naming the most important player on defense for Oklahoma. I think the most important player on the defense this year is Neville Gallimore, the sophomore defensive tackle. Um, he played a lot last year. He started every single game in the, the, the second half of the season last year, playing the end 
the defensive end position in the 3-4. He's going to move inside and play his more natural position, which is uh, the defensive tackle position, kind of playing that uh, that Gerald McCoy role in the 4-3 where he's going to be athletic and um, he's going to be he's going to try to be quick and make plays, and I think that's more suited towards his skill set. Uh, if he has a good season, the defense is going to have a good season, uh, just straight up. Well, I mean, Neville Gallimore didn't really have a good season, and the defense didn't have a really good season. So I guess in that way, you were right. Was this really? Should this really be under worst predictions? It's not like you asked me who the most important player in the defense was, and I said Neville Gallimore, and then at the end I said if he goes, then the defense goes. And obviously he didn't have a good season, and the defense was the worst defense in OU history. So I think I, I think you should I think this should be put into the. Uh, the, uh, another uh, another one into Grant's Hall of Fame of awesomeness. Know, is that right? And okay, no, I, I don't know. No, I, I you know Neville had a pretty disappointing season. He's probably the first person to tell you that. Well, I mean, it's I guess it's just a uh, it, it's um you know it's it says a lot to you. I mean, I guess I I couldn't really find any other just glaringly awful awful predictions. I mean, I mean, what was I going to do the the one where you you predicted Stanford? You know, that was kind of boring. I mean, that's not even Oklahoma related. Uh, you know, Grant Calcaterra as impact freshman on offense. I mean, I know you had Lamb. I don't know. I'm seeing so. this. I'm seeing this last one. My last person on this last one was is bad, really bad in <laughs> retrospect. All right. So then, you know, you, you had one not so bad for your worst, but then your, your final worst was was pretty bad. So, OK, so those are two of our worst. Now let's move on back to the positive predictions. And this next topic is the Heisman Trophy winner. And well, Grant, your—I I would say who you picked for this, but that's going to be in your worst predictions. But for for me, let's just say I nailed the Heisman Trophy winner. But I'm going to go with Baker Mayfield. I think he's the best quarterback in college football. I think Oklahoma is going to be very good this season, and the reason. Because of that, will be Baker Mayfield. Not breaking any news here. If they are really good, it will be because, be because of Baker Mayfield. I think this is his year as the best player in the country to win the Heisman Trophy, so I'm going to go with Baker Mayfield. Well, I sure provided lots of evidence of why I thought Mayfield would win it. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, but everything you said was right. I mean, you said, I think he's the best player in the country, and I think if OU is good this year, it's going to be because of Baker Mayfield. That I mean, that was... I mean. What else can I say about that other than that? That was pretty prophetic. I, uh, you know, I, I kind of looked at that as the same as picking Alabama to win it all. I kind of thought that was the obvious pick. And if you didn't pick Baker Mayfield to win the Heisman, you were kind of trying too hard. And some people really, really wanted Sam Darnold and really, really, well, not, I guess, before the year, Sam Darnold. But during the year, some people really, really wanted Saquon Barkley to win it, man. But Baker Mayfield was consistent all season long. And, and I mean, he, he just was the best player in college football, hands down, this past year. So, period. Yeah, there's period. no doubt about it. Next up, Grant, one of your better predictions, and I thought this was a. I mean, this was actually a real savvy one, and I, you know, I don't think anybody would have seen this one coming. The topic was, what is Oklahoma's trap game this season? And I predicted Kansas State because that was kind of the obvious one. It came after OU Texas. It was on the road in Manhattan. I think Kansas State, as we've seen. Uh, you know, you, you kind of weren't feeling it because Kansas State's usually not that good, and Oklahoma plays pretty well against Kansas State. But I, I just, you know, I don't like those those road games after big games. That would be a letdown. 
Well, you went a different direction, Grant, with your, uh, your, your Oklahoma trap game. Here's what you had to say. I'll throw a game out there that I think a lot of people are just kind of think is just a layup, and that's uh, that's week four against Baylor. That game is at Baylor. Um, you know, I, I don't really have any hard hitting analysis on this, other than it just, other than I just kind of have a bad feeling about it. Um, I, I always just kind of think back to the the game that that is stuck in my mind is is 2007 at Colorado, where as a game they had absolutely no business losing. But just weird stuff happens, and I know Baylor's going to be a really well-coached team. Matt Rule seems like he's going to turn that program around, and it's going to be a tough, hardcore, blue-collar team. Um, I, I, I'm not sure what sort of offense they're going to run yet. I know Matt Rule is, is kind of a, a pro-style guy. Um, of course, Baylor does not have the, uh, the personnel to run a pro-style offense at all, so I don't know if Matt Rule will, will kind of force it those, uh, those first couple years while he recruits to fit his style. Um, but Baylor still has, I mean, Baylor outside of OU and Texas arguably has, you know, the most talent on their roster in the entire league just because they have, they have, they did recruit so well under Art Bryles. Um, it just seems like a game that might sneak up on the Sooners, and it's away from home, so that's always a problem. Well, I mean, it snuck up on them, that's for sure. That was the first time this year Oklahoma looked very poor. Yeah, and that's the, I mean, going into that game, it was it was a weird game, wasn't it, when it kind of transpired like that? It just sort of came out of nowhere. They were dominating, and then all of a sudden they weren't. Yeah. So, and yeah, and, and I know going into that game, as, as, you know, as the season was actually going on, I felt a lot better about it going in because at that time it looked like Baylor was maybe one of the worst teams in the whole country, and they turned out to be just that. But, but still, I, it, was, it was a weird game, and, and Baylor still has some, has some talent at the skill positions, and that's mostly what I was, was worried about going into it. And it seems, you know, that's what happened. That's really what happened in the game. It was uh, OU started to really get burned by by the few uh, the few skill players Baylor still had left over from the Bryles era. And finally, we finish up our look back at our preseason predictions with Grant and I's worst prediction each of 2017. We'll start with Grant's Heisman Trophy winner. Grant, who's going to win the Heisman? I wanted to be realistic about this. Uh, the uh, the favorite never wins. Marcus Mariota is really the only favorite that has ever won the award. With that in mind, I'm going to go with Jalen Hurts, uh, just because I think he's going to be on the country's best team. He's going to play quarterback. His numbers are going to be better than last year. Do I think Jalen Hurts, at the, even at the end of the year, is going to be the best player in the country? Not even close, but the best player in the country very rarely wins the Heisman Trophy. Um, so I'm just going to go with uh, just kind of the layup. I'm going to go with the with the quarterback on the best team in the country, Jalen Hurts. You kind of qualified your pick there in the middle of it. I did. So it doesn't when you actually go back and listen to it, it doesn't look that bad. But when you take in you know what happened over the course of the season into account, it sounds pretty terrible. And also, especially because Jalen Hurts got benched in the national championship game last night, and he's 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 very clearly not very he's not good. I I didn't. That that's I I really hadn't seen Jalen Hurts play a lot this year. He he regressed. He regressed. He, he regressed big time because he was he was big really time. good in 2016. I thought I I thought I thought last year he was kind of like he reminded me a lot of Jake Fromm except with just more mobility, uh, and and that he made a lot of really nice throws. This year I I didn't I hadn't seen any of that at all. He just he looked lost in the passing game. I'm curious how much that has to do with 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 Lane Kiffin not being there. 
yeah, it's, that's probably a, a huge a huge part of it. All right, finally, let's get to the worst prediction ever made on this show. And I've touched on it quite a bit as the years progress, but now it's just here's here's my uh, here's my worst prediction victory lap topic Oklahoma's leading rusher who is it going to be and remember going in this was difficult because we didn't know who was really going to be the starter because Lincoln Riley kept telling us all the running backs were good it was between Abdul Adams Rodney Anderson Trey Sermon and Marcellus Sutton Grant you picked Abdul Adams which was a pretty good pick at the time because he was going to start and Abdul Adams did start Adams though ended up being the third leading rusher for the Sooners. Of course, Rodney Anderson came on at a uh, kind of out of nowhere and and led the team in rushing with over 1,100 yards, 13 touchdowns, average 6.2 yards per carry. So it was Anderson leading it. You picked Adams, not a bad pick. Who did I go with? Take a listen. I think Marcellus Sutton is going to lead the team in rushing this year because from what I've seen of him in limited amounts of practice time this fall he looks like the best running back of the four main ones out there between Sutton Abdul Adams Rodney Anderson and Trey Sermon Sutton just looks put together he's a small guy he's listed at only five foot eight but he's compact he is fast twitch movements he looks like he can make great cuts we saw him in the spring game he looked great in there scored a touchdown averaged almost six yards per carry this is a guy it's his first year at OU so not many people know about him. He was a four-star out of high school. He went to junior college the past couple of years. He was ranked as the number two junior college running back in the nation by ESPN. And last season, last fall, he averaged almost seven yards per carry, seven, 6.7 yards per carry, scored 10 touchdowns. Sutton's not going to be the main guy at first because I think Abdul Adams will get the lion's share of the carries. He'll get the first look, I guess, because of what you all, all you said. But based on what I've seen, I'm going to take a flyer, and I think Marcellus Sutton is going to be the guy leading this backfield. <laughs> yeah, I could not have been more wrong well, about that. Well done. Well, you know what? I like, I like Marcellus, I, I, and I think he's, he's a lot better than his numbers this year indicated. You know, He didn't even get an opportunity really this year to, to see what he had to do. Um, Marcellus, there, there's nothing wrong with Marcellus. He's he's a good player. I think he 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 showed that he's a good player in the very you know in the in the few opportunities he got this year. But I mean, yeah, it's a really bad prediction. Lee OU's backup quarterback outrushed Marcellus Sutton this year. Yeah, Sutton ended up finishing sixth on the team in rushing, and yeah, Kyler Murray had more rushing yards than Marcellus Sutton. Baker Mayfield was fourth, which I guess I mean that's not surprising. I mean it was it was mainly Anderson, Sermon, and Adams than Mayfield was able to run for some yardage as well. So, yeah, biggest whiff of the year coming on the Marcellus Sutton Toledo U in rushing. Got that one wrong. So that's our recap of our preseason predictions. Some amazing picks, some uh, some swing, swing and misses. Before we get going, Grant, the national title game was last night. We were recording this on Tuesday night. I Here, I'll, I'll say uh, some brief thoughts. I, I was surprised. I, I didn't think Georgia would be able to be very effective offensively because I didn't think Jake Fromm – I mean, I thought Fromm played okay against Oklahoma, but Alabama's defense is obviously light years above Oklahoma's defense. And I thought I saw enough from Fromm against OU, him missing some throws when he was not under any sort of duress. And I knowing that Alabama was going to be able to slow down Georgia's rushing attack a lot more than Oklahoma, I just thought that they'd be able to get after him and make him uncomfortable and, and, and make him – turn the ball over and make some mistakes which Alabama did it's just what it came down to it seemed like was that what you've been saying kind of all year not maybe not all year but you know Alabama's offense just isn't very good and Alabama's 
uh, you know, offense under Jalen Hurts especially couldn't do anything against Georgia's defense, which, you know, you see Oklahoma do so well against that Georgia defense, and then you see how well Georgia's defense played in that national title game, and then you see Georgia blow a 13-point lead. Grant, I, I, I didn't watch the entire game. I kind of went back and forth watching it. I saw the majority of kind of the ending of it, kind of when, uh, when Tua came in and, and Alabama played really well down the stretch. But I got to be honest, man, that I didn't like watching that at all because it didn't go the way I thought it would. And it was just more confirmation to me that Oklahoma really gave it away in the Rose Bowl. And Oklahoma, I mean, yeah, the, the defense would have made Jalen Hurts look a lot better than he looked against Georgia's defense. But, man, I, this, was, this was Oklahoma's year to win another title. And that game made it even worse. It made it even more of that thought to me. I don't know how you felt. I think I think this title and maybe just this this these last 10, 10 or so days just I, I it just kind of reinforces that you know how hard it is to win a title and how how many things need to go go your way and how many things need to go right and of course you you know you give yourself a better chance when you sign 10 five-star players every year like Alabama's done for about 8 or 9 consecutive years Is and, that how many they know, get every year they get like 9 or 10 five-stars is that they usually they usually get about six That's seven insane, eight man. around that like total. Oklahoma's yeah, like, Oklahoma is lucky to get one in a in a recruiting class. Yeah, exactly. So, and you know what? I I, I thought that game on Monday night was just a really weird game. I, I think everyone sort of feels the same way. Uh, at times, it felt like a, it was a game that Georgia dominated, and uh, there were for about seventy five percent of that game. I was, I mean, I I was ready to say. I mean, it's Georgia is, is by far just the better team than Alabama and I um something with Tua just changed changed the whole the whole thing I think Georgia kind of went into a shell very similar to what OU did against Georgia and uh Tua just he added that that extra layer that Jalen Hurts couldn't and that extra layer was he was able to complete forward passes and um Tua is going to be a problem for other teams he was uh, he was impressive uh just and some some of the anticipation he throws some of the anticipation throws he made were really impressive. The one, um, his the touchdown pass to tie the game was incredible. He he just threw it to a spot and no one was there yet. And then Calvin Ridley just kind of sh- you know just showed up and caught it. And that seemed like obviously a pretty lucky, to it. lucky play because it looked like he was going it, it may, to the it, uh, it may have been. the guy in the back of the end zone running a an in route a deep in route. That's a, it was like that's who he was going to. And Ridley kind of just stepped in out of nowhere and intercepted the ball. I mean that. I what impressed me the most by him in, in the in the brief amount of time I watched, and I don't have any specific plays, but it seemed like on a few plays he was really good at na- navigating the pocket for a guy that's never started a game, never really played a college game. He really looked comfortable and able to like step up in the pocket and muddy pocket, and and there was one play where he was able to get away from a a sack and like roll out to the left, and I think pick up a first down when he looked like he was dead to right. So. That was really impressive to me, and, and those a, a couple plays there where he he looked comfortable given the the magnitude of the situation. Yeah, and I thought obviously you know true freshman coming in at halftime down thirteen points and you rally your team to win. I just you know a legendary performance from Tua. I believe it's pronounced Taya Viola. I think it's how you pronounce it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I can't even remember what. What is but it, I'm, what his I'm, name I'm is, sure. Yeah. yeah, that that'll be that'll be that'll be pronounced a thousand different times over the next three years. So, I don't know. I I, I thought it was a weird game. It, it's a game I might go back and watch again just because it, it it played out just in such an odd manner. 
it's it's really one of the first times, maybe the only time that I can ever recall calling or watching a game where I truly felt like the better team lost. I, I, over the course of the game, Georgia was just better over the course of the game. And I, I, I don't know how Alabama won that game. I, I it just, it, it seemed, it was one of those things where it's like Georgia was up by double digits the entire time. And then just all of a sudden there at the end was like, oh, weird. Did Alabama just tie it somehow? It just kind of, it, it kind of, it kind of just snuck up on you there. And um, just on a personal note, the, the petty side of me, Lee, was a little, uh, the outcome of the game was, was slightly satisfying to me knowing that they that Georgia had a double digit lead a majority of the game uh it only you know to get their hearts ripped out in overtime the petty side of me felt pretty good about that and I'm kind of an eye for an eye thing I I, I never I, I I didn't feel like the Georgia fans deserved to be that excited um a week ago at the Rose Bowl and and I for whatever reason just the the petty side of me you can you know judge me for it all you want but that was slightly satisfying to me to see them be disappointed like that, like we were. Um, and so take that for what you will. But personally, that's just kind of how I felt. There's two things that I tweeted out that I tweeted out um, Monday night after the game in it. And I want to I want to get your thoughts on it. The, the first one was I can't believe that Georgia was playing cover two with the game on the line at on second and 26. And they were in cover two. I couldn't believe that. And also, I, I kind of added another tweet later. Boy, I really wish Georgia would have played some cover two in the second half against Oklahoma like at least one time because the entire time they were just playing press, single high, man coverage and making it very difficult. Yet, when the game was on the line in the national championship with a freshman quarterback, Georgia got kind of uh, – lazy is not the right word, but they, they got complacent after a big sack and went cover two. I just don't understand why you run a cover two. I mean, it's supposed to be a basic, but if you're going to run anything, go, go cover three. Run a cover three so you have three deep deep thirds of the field covered so you don't give up a big play like that. So I thought that was insane. What, what, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. And yeah, I, I, I had a similar sort of thought while I was watching it, like in the sense that, wow, it would have been nice to see receivers running wide open like that against OU. Uh, but, you know, I don't... I. I would caution everyone listening. Don't don't get hung up on stuff like this. Every game is different, and you know, it different plays, different teams will will dictate what you call in situations like that. So, well, yeah, in general, of, but that that was that was bad. I mean, like it seemed like in the second half, Georgia's defense just didn't really make any bad calls, or unless if they did, Oklahoma's offense just didn't take advantage of it. But I mean, that was a bad call. I mean, that was a really weird call in that situation, and it really played into Alabama's hands. And I. That was that was such a, a bizarre thing. And and to kind of to transition from that, the other thing that I, I want to think of uh, that I thought of what happened to Georgia, what happened to, if you're a Georgia fan, if you're a Georgia supporter, you know, seeing Georgia's defense allow a touchdown on second and 26 to lose the national championship was about as improbable as for us. Oklahoma supporters watching the Sooners offense need about two or three first downs to, to win the Rose Bowl and not be able to even get one first down. So each fan base saw something in, that there was really no reason to believe was going to happen, which I thought that was a, an incredibly weird coincidence. I, I think that's a, uh, that was a really, yeah, I, I think that's a really good uh, comparison to make there. And I, I, I feel like that's something that I've been thinking the last 24 hours, but I think you just, you perfectly put it into words there. 
because yeah, there there's there's got to be just something about that that just leaves a really bad taste in George's mouth. And it's not just the fact that they lost the national championship. Just like for us, it's not the fact that they just lost in the Rose Bowl in the semifinal. It's the way it happened. That was just that's extra gut punchy. And I think I think you did a really good job of explaining that there. One more thought on uh, on the the national title game, and I want to get your thoughts on it fast. Uh, a lot of uh, you see a lot of man, Nick Saban putting in two at halftime was uh, what a, what a call. I can't believe it. And and my thoughts are well, one, you're Nick Saban, so I mean you have the the most job security ever. Two, you're you're watching your quarterback and your offense do absolutely nothing in the first half. I think Hertz only had 21 yards passing zero points in the first half you know you got two of there you've seen him all throughout the season you saw him in spring ball you know he's talented and halftime of college football might as well last an hour it seems like so to me it's it's not a it's not a difficult decision to, to change it up because what did he have to lose I mean Hertz wasn't doing anything so if Tua comes into the game and doesn't play well, well, okay, well, let's just go back to Hurts and see what he can do. So really there was no, nothing that Nick Saban could do to lose, but yet he's getting praised like that was like the biggest move ever. I just wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah, I actually agree with you. Um, and so I I generally give Nick Saban a lot of credit in situations like this, and I think he, he thinks through these things very logically. And if I can just step into his mind real quick, I'm, I'm assuming at halftime he's thinking, if I leave Jalen Hurts in, we are going to get shut out in this game. So I have no other option than to go with Tua. And you know what? They see Tua every day in practice, so they know that he can probably ball a little bit. And they thought that this would maybe give them the right spark. But I, I just knowing, knowing Saban in his head, he was thinking, if I don't make a change here, it doesn't matter because this game is over if I don't make a change. So I think, yes, I, I, I thought it was an obvious thing to do. That Hurts was that bad in the first okay, half. Okay, so I'm glad you feel that way. And, and one more note, too. Also, all credit to Tua. I mean, he had to step up and play well, and he did. So he took advantage of the situation. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, to minimize his performances. I'm not. I'm just trying to to put into some context of the, oh my God, Saban is the best coach ever because look at him taking out his quarterback that has only lost like two games in his career. It's like, okay, well, so? I mean, did you see the first half? <laughs> like you said, I mean, yeah, they, they Saban, weren't going to score. Not, Saban's not dumb. He knows you know, Jalen Hurts, I think, was like 28-2 and two as a starter coming into this game. He knows, he knows a vast majority of those 28 wins have nothing to do with Jalen Hurts. Nick Saban's not a dummy. Right. He's not... He, he he needed a Hail Mary there and he had he had one choice. There was one thing that he could change about that offense. And, you know, it just so happens they had a five star quarterback sitting there on the bench who could run around a little bit. Yeah, I, I thought it was an obvious move to make. So I'm and, and I hadn't seen a lot of that either, so I'm glad that you brought it up. All right, that is our national title talk and national title thoughts. And that is our show. We'll be back next week with more invigorating Oklahoma themed sports talk. Until then, for Grant, I'm Lee. This is West of Everest.